Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, hello and welcome. Thank you for listening to The Ron Show, whether it's on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Honestly, have not been paying nearly enough attention to what's happening under the Gold Dome with the General Assembly in session. But one bill that is just one more vote and a pen stroke away from being signed into law, to me, is one of the more chilling overreaches by conservatives in the Georgia General Assembly. And with me to discuss that bill is uh, Matt Scott, who, along with Sam Barnes, wrote a piece in the Atlanta Community Press Collective that exposes the fact that there's a bill that is literally just within a breath of becoming law that would expand cash bail to include some other offenses that are a little surprising and, quite frankly, to me, uh, run afoul of First Amendment rights. But they also will criminalize charitable bail funds and actually could could send repercussions throughout the entire bail bond industry. Matt, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. Always happy to be here. So uh, give us the story here. This is uh, HB 60 or uh, SB 63, right? Is that the one? The number yeah, we got 63 uh, was an expansion of the cash bail uh, program that that was introduced last year. Uh, it, you know, it was voted on in differing forms in both the House and the Senate, and they commissioned a conference committee to come together and, and make a final version, uh, which was for the longest time pretty in line with the already you know existing version. It was just an expansion of cash bail, and then at the last minute, uh, on sometime between late. Wednesday night, very early Thursday morning, uh, they added a section uh, that criminalizes the existence of uh, so-called charitable bail funds. So like the Atlanta Solidarity Fund or Black Mall bailout or or really, you know, even your church getting together and, and bailing out, uh, you know, unhoused church members. A GoFundMe, for example, could wind up putting you in jail for trying to help somebody who needed bail. Yeah, they don't set out what the exact punishment uh, for for paying this. Uh, so if you pay more than three cash bails per year, right. you are in violation of this new law if it is passed. Uh, they don't explain what that punishment would be. It is a misdemeanor uh, as laid out by the law. But, uh, you know, this is something that I think everyone <laughs> should take very much, uh, you know, some pause and, and, and concern over uh, just in the implication of you know, we, we can no longer band together as a community and uh, fight against, you know, what what I think everyone is willing to admit is a very unjust system, uh, at least at times, even if you aren't an abolitionist, you, you have to agree that the cash bail system is, you know, harmful and in particularly uh, on, on racial lines well on racial lines on uh, on income lines you know personal wealth uh, it's it's anti-poor it doesn't allow for any wiggle room. i mean it's art listen I, I tell people all the time it's pretty expensive to live being poor in this country and the 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 uh the, the room for error just isn't there there's no wiggle room and when you run afoul of the law in some way like, i mean if you just got stopped for speeding and said one cross word to a cop, you wind up in jail. And obviously, if you don't have the money for the speeding ticket and you are jailed, you may not have 
cash for the bail, which means you miss your job if that you may have been heading to or have the next day. I mean, the, the, the snowball effects are, are, are pretty jarring. And, and a note that I wanted to point out in your article here, uh, you, you point out that the bill only allows elected and appointed judges to even set bond in the state of Georgia. Yeah. So currently, you know, even in Fulton County uh, here here in Atlanta and in DeKalb County, we have judges filling vacancy positions. And that's to help alleviate, uh, you know, the the large number of people that, that we arrest and who need to see a judge to have their bail set. So this is going to add just another level of strain on that process by limiting the number of judges who can even set bail. This is this is pretty alarming stuff. Now, I mean, listen, the the expansion of ineligible offenses uh, would grow to include protesting unlawful assembly, obstruction of a law enforcement officer, which I just alluded to. Actually, the the, the speeding, t- the getting stopped for speeding, and I mean, we just we just saw a a, a church deacon was was actually killed uh, by uh, an Atlanta police officer. But if if he had been charged with obstructing instead of losing his life, I guess there would be a uh, a different argument here. Street racing, reckless stunt driving, all about that. That's fine with me. I, I don't care. You know, lock them up. I, you know, I, I realize, you know, kids are going to have fun, but, you know, you're, you're, you're a danger. Anyway, the, the expansion of these charges just seems to directly target people who wish to protest. I mean, this is anything from Cop City to civil protests, uh, civil rights uh, protests that date back to the, you know, mid-20th centuries. And, of course, we saw flare up again in 2020. Are, are you hearing any sort of pushback, uh, organizations like the ACLU looking to step up and, 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 and fight this? Yeah, the ACLU of Georgia sent out a, uh, an email yesterday uh, advocating for, for folks to reach out to their uh, local elected officials. Southern Center for Human Rights also sent out an update yesterday. They also uh, sent um, a letter to both the Atlanta City Council and the Fulton County Board of Commissioners both of whom spend you know, significant amounts of money uh, lobbying um, in in the Gold Dome uh, in order to to push them to fight back against this legislation. We saw that the uh, measure passed in the Senate by a 30 to 17 margin. Do you know or do you have a sense if there's any wiggle room in the House that you that there they might be able to sway some minds or is this pretty much set as, uh, you know, set in stone on, along partisan lines? Yeah, so it, it passed in the uh, Senate along partisan lines with the sole exception of <laughs> Senator Colton Moore, uh, who voted along with the Democrats against the bill. Uh, but every other Republican voted in favor of the bill. Um, I, I, we anticipate a very similar uh, party line split when it comes down to the House, um, perhaps with the extra attention that this bill is now getting. Um, we might see some shifting, uh, particularly in more vulnerable, uh, you know, purple uh, districts, but it's, it's, it seems like it's going to pass. Uh, but hopefully, you know, in the next few days, something can change. Your article points out, too, that this isn't just a Georgia thing or a reaction solely to the Stop Cop City movement. This is happening across the country. Yeah, there is a concentrated push, uh, particularly in red states, um, with the you know, exception of Virginia being a purple state, uh, to to in, in some way inhibit or outlaw um, charitable bail funds. Uh, you know, in, in, in Kentucky, uh, in Virginia, in Tennessee, in Texas, 
And uh, I think Indiana and all of these states have passed some form of legislation uh, either limiting the offenses for which a bail fund can operate or requiring bail funds to register, adding extra you know, onerous fees on top of them. Uh, Georgia's particularly difficult in that in order for these bail funds to continue to operate, they would have to register as professional bail bondsmen, uh, and they still can't post uh, bonds, uh, cash bonds. They would have to go to a third party to attain a surety bond. So it's pushing more money into you know this this cash bail system that is uh, pardon the pun but cash cow uh in a lot of ways for you know quote-unquote public safety minded uh elected officials matt scott joining us from the atlanta community press collective at atl press it's atlpress.org right do i have that right uh atlpresscollective.com there you go i was missing the word there atlpresscollective.com so matt put this into the scope of the civil rights movement if you will can you imagine if these sort of laws existed back when Dr. King was roaming streets throughout the South and holding peaceful protests and being arrested for unlawful assembly, and his organization wouldn't have been able to have bailed out the likes of Dr. King? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not a hard stretch of the imagination uh, to consider that, that, that this might have been something that would have happened during the civil rights movement had it caught on uh, to the extent that we see today, of course, you know, bail funds have existed since the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. but they, they've really come uh, into focus over the last few years uh, after the George Floyd uprising and the hundreds of arrests that took place uh, across the country um, and well, really across the world uh, in, in light of those protests. So, uh, you know, had had it been as popular back then, I have no doubt that state legislatures and, and probably possibly even the federal government would have uh, done some work to attempt to uh, hinder the function of, of these bail funds back then. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I want to expound on that just a little bit. If, if you think about it, it, first of all, it was already detrimental to just about anyone to speak up for civil rights in the mid-century South, whether you were black or white. But the, the threat of being locked up without the opportunity to be bailed out, whether uh, by oneself or an organization— uh, you know, again, affecting your, your ability to work the next day or, or the next week would have really suppressed the support from not just within the marginalized community, but those who supported them as well during the civil rights era. You can apply this to women's rights. You could apply this to the LGBTQ movement and, uh, you know, their history of protest. It's pretty chilling how this just seems to be a wanton, willful attempt to suppress folks who are advocating for rights. Yeah, that that certainly seems how it, it reads to me. And, you know, it's not just with this legislation. We've seen other legislation across the country doing things like if you get uh, arrested protesting, uh, setting a mandatory minimum stay in jail uh, for that charge or requiring a protest charge to appear before a judge. So really, you know, adding these penalties for for getting out in the streets and, and, and engaging in, in your First Amendment protected rights. And I can't help but wonder, like, if I wanted to apply this to uh, January 6th protesters uh, who, you know, who may have been locked up and organizations or, or, or politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene who would want to fundraise to bail them, you know, this, this would apply in a similar sense if that were occurring in a state that uh, enacted these sort of policies. Yeah, certainly. And I, I I would hazard a guess that the Colton Moore, Senator Colton Moore's vote was along those lines. 
Yeah, that's that. When you mentioned his name, I thought to myself, "Well, now why would Colton Moore be against this?" And then I realized, oh, J six. That's exactly what crossed my mind. All right, Matt Scott, Atlanta Community Press Collective. We'll include that article in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Thank you for joining us and catching us up on this important bill. And we'll remind folks uh, to reach out to their state representative and let them know their thoughts on this bill before they vote on it. And you, it looks like uh, Tuesday, right? Uh, Tuesday is the next day that the uh, the legislature is in session and we anticipate the vote to take place in the House then. Matt Scott, thank you so much for joining us and catching us up on this bill. We appreciate you for joining the Ron Show. Thanks, Ron. So when you read about legislation like that getting passed, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the South and in a lot of red states, is it any wonder that there is a bit more skepticism and scrutiny aimed at law enforcement, particularly when you are of a marginalized community who has had to rally for rights? I mean, suddenly your ability to protest, your First Amendment right is now at the mercy of law enforcement, which is an arm of those in power, no matter who is in power. And with a somewhat stolen Supreme Court, the judiciary isn't necessarily going to be there to have your back. Back after this, The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show, and happy weekend to you. Gorgeous here in North Georgia. I'm getting in a hike tomorrow. I was going to do it today, but... uh, this pesky thing called a podcast and it has to be done by five o'clock. By the way, I mentioned this earlier this week and I'm going to keep reminding you starting Monday, the Ron show will first air 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. It'll be fresher then. Think about it as uh, the greener banana. That'll be a little less green, a little more yellow by five o'clock when it airs again on America One Radio uh, at AmericaOneRadio.com and on its uh, app. As the day goes on, something may break and I may have to update. I'll do that. I don't mind that. But what I do do see myself doing going forward next week is uh, not needing to stop my work as a residential real estate agent, a realtor with the XP Realty, call me, to have to stop at 3.30 to put together a show. I can do it uh, after work, the day before, or first thing in the morning. That's probably more likely to be the case. I used to work in morning radio, so um, that'll probably be what I do. So starting on Monday, Show airs 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. first on America One Radio, the app, and at AmericaOneRadio.com, and then the replay at 5 o'clock. Okay, let's get to this. This is Friday, of course, when I do the show for the weekend, and you, if you're listening Saturday, okay, it's the weekend. Uh, Friday's what they call the news dump day in the political realm, and I didn't know about that until I watched the West Wing. They always dump out the bad news on Friday so that... Uh, folks who have uh, divided attention doing other things for the weekend don't have so much time to fixate on the bad news. However, today being February 2nd, when it was mandated that Fonnie Willis and or Nathan Wade have a response to the allegations levied against them January 8th, that was supposed to happen today. I Coincidental? I don't know. Consequential? So while this may feel like something of a news dumpy, slide it out so that nobody notices sort of thing, it was kind of mandated it was going to happen today. What I'm referring to? Let's go to CBS News. We are tracking some breaking news for you right now. CBS News has learned exclusively in a filing by Fulton County District Attorney's Office an acknowledgement that Fannie Willis engaged in a relationship with attorney Nathan Wade. Oh, my God. Continue. You, of course, recall that both are working on the Georgia election interference case involving former President Donald Trump. Joining us now with more on Willis's response is CBS News investigative producer Daniel Clydman. Uh, Daniel, uh, extraordinary reporting. Um, tell us what you've learned here, particularly about how Willis is expected to respond. Well, CBS News ob- obtained a draft of uh, the 
filing, the response to the motion that had all these allegations about her having a, uh, a, a relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor who she hired to lead the Trump investigation. And first of all, it acknowledges uh, that there was a relationship between them. But it pushes back very hard uh, on some of the facts that were alleged, but also on the idea that this represented any kind of conflict of interest uh, that could lead to her, her disqualification from the case or uh, dismissal against any of the uh, defendants. And you have that filing in front of you. I do, what, I do. What stands out to you? What are the headlines? Well, you know, one of the most, uh, I think, important uh, things in, in this filing is, is actually an affidavit, a sworn affidavit by Nathan Wade um, that is... Uh, uh, that is an exhibit, um, and it, I'll read it. It's, he says uh, in this affidavit, in 2022, District Attorney Willis and I developed a personal relationship in addition to our professional association and friendship. So there's the acknowledgement of the relationship. But importantly, he also says that that relationship uh, you know, did not begin until 2022. My understanding is it's early to mid-2022. He was hired for this position by Fonnie Willis in November of 2020, of 2021. That is an important distinction because uh, of the suggestion that she hired someone she was having a romantic relationship with uh, and someone who had come under some criticism for not maybe having all of the credentials uh, needed for a case like this. They also push back on that, by the way. Uh, the affidavit uh, lays out in detail his experience as a lawyer, including having done uh, a lot of felony cases in uh, both state court and federal court. Do, do we have a sense at all? I know, obviously, this is all still developing, but what this could mean in terms of consequences? I mean, mm. what are the chances that Fonnie Willis might step aside now? Mm. Well, this is the question that everyone wants to know. And, and there's a hearing that uh, Judge Scott McAfee, who's the presiding judge in this case, has scheduled for February 15th, an evidentiary hearing where he's going to have to uh, hear some of the evidence and then rule on this uh, on this motion. Look, this, the, the bar is high for disqualification uh, on the basis of conflicts of interest. And this is the argument that Fonnie Willis and her team make, make here, that they had no uh, vested interest, financial or otherwise, in a, in, uh, in, in a conviction uh, in this case beyond uh, wanting to uh, do justice, beyond wanting to vindicate the rights of, uh, of their uh, of, of people in, in Georgia and in Fulton County. So the idea that the uh, certain financial entanglements between uh, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade could have somehow biased the investigation, they, they say that is not true at all. One other important uh, uh, detail uh, in, the, in the filing um, is these, the, the allegation was that uh, Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis went on vacations together, yeah. Caribbean cruises, yeah, uh, uh, lavish vacations, um, and that... that and that Nathan Wade paid for that mm -hmm. from money that she was authorizing paying him for this job. Uh, and that was potentially a misuse of, of taxpayer funds, potentially yeah, yeah. added to the idea of a conflict of interest. What they reveal in this filing was that uh, they actually alternated paying for the, some of these trips. And Fonnie Willis actually paid for some of them as well. And there are actually uh, receipts for Delta flights to Miami that Fonnie Willis paid herself. Georgia State University political science professor Anthony Michael Christ on Twitter responding, if I were grading the Fulton County DA's office and their response to the Roman motion, today's filing an A minus, he gives it. I would have liked more specifics on the finances and cost sharing. Can't say that I disagree with him there. Christ's communications, he gives them an F. The prolonged silence was not good and divorce motion to quash was nasty.
The indicted former President Donald Trump's Georgia lawyer, Steve Sadow, releasing a statement earlier today that says the Fulton County DA's response asks the court to turn a blind eye to her alleged personal and financial misconduct. Her sole objective is to try and stop the court from holding the evidentiary hearing that is set for February 15th. While the DA admits to an intimate relationship with her employee, Special Assistant DA Wade, she fails to provide full transparency and necessary financial details. Indeed, she says absolutely nothing about the so-called, quote, coincidence of Wade filing for divorce the day after the DA hired him. Most significantly and disingenuously, the DA attempts to explain and downplay her, quote, church speech by preposterously claiming that her racially charged extrajudicial comments were somehow not about the case or the defendants and that her intentional injection of racial animus in violation of her ethical responsibilities as a prosecutor should simply be ignored. Apparently, the DA believes she can make public out-of-court statements about race, this case, and the defendant whenever she wants, and the court is powerless to punish her by disqualification. Such hubris for all to see. Oh, that's ironic. Who's his client? Nothing has changed. Our requested remedy remains clear. Dismiss the case and disqualify the DA together with her team and office from any related matters. Back in just a second. Call or text The Ron Show anytime at 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So crazy that I had planned on a show that was just going to be singularly focused on a couple of topics. And then Fonnie Willis says, hold my, hold your beer, actually, hold your beer. Uh, anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> so I, I only get to give about eight minutes to respond to the Fonnie Willis uh, news dump today. And unfortunately, that'll just have to wait till Monday. Trust me, I've got plenty more to say about that. But I yeah. had already booked my guest, uh, Dr. Matt Wilkinson, sociologist, good friend of mine from back in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. How are you, buddy? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm better than I'm better than I think Fonnie and Nathan are, but uh, I'm good. Yeah. So anyway, heading into the weekend with that on our heads, um, I actually reached out to you because I was just just kind of enjoying how you're in, having a little bit of fun on uh, your own personal Facebook page, uh, enjoying the just the insanity that is the anti Taylor Swift uh, phenomenon that has just reared its head. Uh, lately, and I said I got to get this guy on. We have to talk about let's let's talk about something that's kind of lighthearted. This is really kind of silly stuff, isn't it? It is. It's silly stuff, but I think some of the more serious stuff kind of um, comes through in the silly stuff. But I think that at face value, it's kind of so ridiculous and entertaining that it's fun to talk about. Which is why I've kind of been having some. Uh, some fun with it myself. Also, as a, as a now happy to say a Taylor Swift fan, <laughs> I feel like I need to to jump in. Uh, was wasn't at first, but uh, became one after listening to I forgot what it was. Folklore, maybe, where she's just chilling with her songwriters, playing in a um, you know on a farm somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so I thought, okay, I want to I want to chime in on this. I think it's pretty interesting that we have two iconic Tennessee female musicians who are beloved by everyone left of center. And in Dolly's case, a lot of people right of center too, who just appreciate the fact that she's Dolly Parton, but they're both pretty progressive women, just not very right. politically active. And yet they're still loathed. This, this is, uh, this, this makes me think of Laura Ingraham telling LeBron James to just dribble and play. Well, Taylor Swift and Dolly Parton literally almost do nothing but entertain. And yet in Taylor Swift's case, 
because she's front and center and somehow impeding on our sports ball uh, TV viewing, she's she's getting all the outrage. Is this political? Is it sociological? What is it? It's actually, you know, I don't know what percentage of each category, but I think it's definitely both. Um, you know, the, the sociological part of it is that, uh, you know, boys in our society, especially in U.S. society, are, are socialized essentially with one rule, don't wear pink. And pink is, you know, kind of a stand-in for anything feminine. So mm. uh, Taylor Swift is obviously has an enormous fan base. I don't know what the percentage of women, but you see shots of her her tours, and it's all of these women in sync, having fun, moving to the music together. It's joy, it's celebratory. Mm -hmm. And so for, it should just be boys, but it's also grown men. They see that as pink, I don't like it. That's how we show mm -hmm. that we're men, real men in our society. Um, I can't remember exactly who it was. I should have looked it up before the, the call, but uh, the, the quote is masculinity is just the relentless repudiation of the feminine. So we're going to go against anything that's seen as feminine. So that's Taylor Swift. It's uh, getting an education. It's doing well in school. Mm -hmm. It's uh, wearing seatbelts. Um, it was, we saw it with COVID, right? I'm not going to get the vaccine because yeah. that's weak. I'm not going to wear masks. And so it's, um, it's almost like these men, some of these men go on autopilot and in order to to set themselves up as masculine, they avoid these things that are coded as feminine, often to their own um, threats to their own health and safety. And so I kind of like that perspective because it's a little bit more innocent than the political part, mm. which is, oh, she's against Trump or she's against conservatives, therefore I hate her. And that's why she's getting death threats. So I think it's both sociological and it's political. Yeah, it seems to just kind of be coupling at the same time. But to get back to the sports thing, like I grew up, and again, I'm a, I'm a gay male, so it didn't really register with me, but I grew up when all the boys I went to school with had posters of the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. They were on TV a lot more, you know, seconds per right. broadcast than Taylor Swift has ever been. And yet, exactly. why why is that? Why is the reaction so different now? And see, that captures the real difference, though, right? Is that those women, the cheerleaders, are there to serve the men? They are there for explicitly for entertaining the fans. They are dressed for the male gaze. And Taylor Swift is not performing for the approval of men. She's performing for her fans. She is not trying to dance a certain way, wear her hair a certain way for men or for the male gaze. So some of these men will just, I don't get it. I don't find her attractive. She doesn't quote, do it for me. Mm. And that means that she does not have value to them because she's not seeking their attention. And I, you know, I need to obviously say not, obviously not all men. Mm. Um, but you would, you would think that real quote, real men in our society could get to a space where they're comfortable saying, I don't get it. I just don't like her music. Anyway, let's get back to the game, you know, as opposed to having such a strong reaction. That's what really caught my eye is it's such a strong reaction to a super popular pop star. If you don't like the music, okay, not everything's for you. Right. Just let it go. There's yeah. lots of music I don't like, but I don't like rage against it because it's not threatening to me and my identity. So I think that's what's really worth exploring. We're on the phone with uh, Dr. Matt Wilkinson, sociologist, professor at a Coastal Carolina University. That's how he and I know each other. We, we ran some similar circles when I lived in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So I, I feel like there's this opportunity that's getting quashed, too. Like, this is an amazing opportunity. First of all, 
marketers, sports marketers would tell you that about 45% of the fannies in the seats at stadiums belong to women. But there's also now this opportunity for dads who like to watch football to watch football with their daughters who may not have been interested before, but are totally interested now because one of their pop icons, Taylor Swift, is interested in football too because she happens to be dating the tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs. But the political part seems to be poisoning this opportunity. Am I reading this right? Yeah, I I think so. And, you know, men, some men, I think, do see Taylor Swift being there as kind of invading our masculine space. This is our safe space where we can watch football and be men. Mm. But as you pointed out, what was it, 45% of the fans are women. Mm. This is a chance to bring more fans into it. Um, You know, what, what is it about not having women present that allows you to have a safe space. You know, mm. we don't need these women invading our space. So you don't want your daughter to watch football with you. You know, you don't want to hang out with your daughter or your your wife or your sister. You know, why does it need to be a solely male space? And it's not, as you pointed out. But I think that there's that threat that this um, this kind of men's club and this men's hobby and this sport is being invaded by, uh, by women. Um, yeah. And I can't help but wonder. This this is the thing that you know the the, the whole feminist in me here uh, wonders if this has something to do with uh, dads seeing their daughter watching the game and seeing a powerful, celebrated, successful woman doing her thing and choosing to be there, not having to, but choosing to be there, as opposed yes. to the subservient female who is on the sideline, either as the sideline reporter. Or as I mentioned before, in the skimpy outfit, you know, uh, brandishing pom-poms. Yes. She is there because she wants to be. She is there because she has taken an interest in football. And I heard someone say, she doesn't even know anything about football. Why is she there? And I proposed surveying, you know, 80,000 people at a college football game and seeing what percentage of them fully understand the game. A lot of us go just to be with the crowd for the music, for the tailgating yeah, food, yeah. for the emotion, for the electricity. You don't have to have a PhD in football to enjoy the game. And she's learning the game and she's cheering on her boyfriend. Oh, um, God, you know, yeah. they, they're this, they're this like the, the support that runs and the, the love that runs between the two of them is also something that's amazing. Why shouldn't we celebrate that sort of commitment and support? Um, you know, they're both killing it in their respective occupations and, um, you know, I just, I, I love seeing the pictures of them together. It's like, we need more of that, like hope and joy mm. front and center. Mm. And so I think, and to come back to the beginning of, it, I think that's why it's silly is, you know, is this, is this a new type of hater? You're going to hate against that sort of love and that sort of commitment. Um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. Well, and I can't help but point out that the, 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 the party from a political point of view, and you don't have to speak to this, but I will, the, the, the family values people, the moral, moral majority, et cetera, and so on. Here we have a, a couple that seems to very much love each other and be committed to each other's successes enough. I mean, he's gone and, and appeared on tour stops for her, and she's gone to, as we know, several football games this season for him. They, they get along with each other. They love each other. They're not, uh, they're not, part of the NFL's recent issues of, you know, bad relationships and domestic violence and things like that. This should, this should be something that we as a society uphold and and, and adore. Yes. That's the contradiction, right? She is not merely a prop for him. And I think that makes some men very uncomfortable. Um, She, she would be fine without him. And if they, 
go their separate ways. She will probably write, write an amazing album. Mm. She'll be fine without him. She doesn't rely on him. And I think that's threatening to some men. But for the rest of the country and maybe the world who see this as these are two very powerful people who are very skilled at what they do, who are lifting each other up and supporting each other. That's like that's such a great model for how relationships should be, I think. Um, this really does challenge some norms, too, though, because I was sitting here thinking about it. Do you think that Travis Kelsey gets ribbed in the locker room? Hey, it's Mr. Taylor Swift. Uh, but, you know, we have a we have a, a, a female vice president, which means we don't have a second lady. We have a second gentleman. It, it yeah. just it just brings up all kinds of, you know, atypical norms that it seems to to be rattling some folks. Yeah, and he's, you know, I have not watched football ever since the Saints and Titans started not being great teams, and I moved to South Carolina, so I knew a little bit about who he was, but he is certainly very competent in his masculinity, and, you know, aside from her, like his celebrations on the field, the way he moves and dances, he is very comfortable and confident, so I'm pretty sure he can handle all those criticisms, as you want to call me Mr. Taylor Swift, that's fine, I'm dating her and she's amazing. He's not threatened by those attacks, but there might be some good-natured locker room humor as opposed to the other type of locker room humor aimed at him. But also, I guarantee you, his teammates see that he's happy. And if he's happy, that's probably affecting his uh, his mood and his performance uh, on the field. You know, he is in a, a happy, committed, loving relationship. And I think that true teammates and true friends will celebrate that, even if there's some teasing about her, you know, being worth <laughs> a lot more than he is. Certainly interesting to watch this all play out. And, you know, as we led, led the segment, uh, the last segment, we talked about, uh, you know, a district attorney here in Fulton County, Georgia, who had been uh, apparently having a relationship, an affair with uh, someone who is now in the process of divorce. And so that's that's the ugly side of politics that we don't necessarily want or, or even sought to see from a personal point of view. But over on this side, we've got something happy going on. And yet, either way, you've got folks that just cannot be happy with it. Yes. And, that, and that's the part that is away from earlier. I said it's entertaining. That's the part that makes me deeply sad and concerned is that there are people who are perturbed by this and they're irritated instead of saying, I can assume what her politics are and they don't match mine, but seeing love and happiness and commitment and joy, that's a good thing that we need more of. Right. But if it doesn't fit into their box, then suddenly it doesn't just turn into that's not for me. It turns into hate. It turns into attack. Right. It turns into, at the extreme level, death threats. I saw that you know she's had this exponential rise in death threats since <sighs> certain folks started targeting her. The basket of deplorables, I call them. So you know, and, and I liken this to like like I know what Kelsey Grammer's political leanings are, and yet I was happy that Frazier got a reboot. I didn't really care for the product, but I was happy that the show got a reboot. Right. Can can we just enjoy yep. this for what it is and try and keep things in their lanes without people getting all butthurt about political views? Yeah. Yeah. You know, show some support. It, do, it doesn't cost anything to either be totally quiet. What was the thing? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Yeah. You know? yeah. Not, not for me. I'll just uh, wait until the camera pans back to the, the sports ball, you know, but what? it's, it's so, it's so, I mean, not to, not to make light of the word, but it's so triggering for some of these people. It really like is. I saw it's like 40 seconds per three and a half hour football game. She's on screen. <laughs> I think you know, it's not interfering with the action. Yeah. It's just a crowd shot. And they're irritated by her just existing. Yeah. 
I think the crab cakes that they, you know, have B-roll footage of during the Baltimore Kansas City game actually got more airtime than Taylor Swift did. And you didn't hear anybody who maybe yeah. anti-pascatarian go, "How dare they show crab cakes? It is an affront." Yeah, yeah but vegetarians are like, "I will never watch the NFL again because crab cakes appeared for 40 seconds." Right. Right. What do you make of the fact that there are warnings now from like Sean Hannity and uh, Donald Trump, et cetera, and so on, right wing media, to for her not to step in and endorse Joe Biden? You know, I don't know who is advising well anyone on the left or the right, but especially the political right right now. Because if I was on an advising team or some sort of think tank, I would be saying, do not mention her, yes. do not attack her. And ignore it, because by doing that, you're already kind of pushing the button to get her fans to turn against you. We've seen this. We, yeah. Every every battle someone's picked with her, her fans rally around her. Oh, yeah. This isn't just a few fans, right? Mm -hmm. She has this <laughs> probably just one of the army. biggest followings of any musician. Yep. So why would you devote airtime or speeches, you know, to uh, to attack her when she hasn't supported? You know, the other guy, maybe she will, maybe she won't. But, you know, if she takes a stand on being uh, pro-LGBTQ or, you know, women's rights or women's, you know, right to fair pay, and they go after her, it's only going to more deeply solidify support for the other side. So yeah. I'm, I'm baffled. That is bad politics to try to go after her. I, I was, don't get it. I was just going to say, when in an era when the Dobbs decision has been so far removed now that it may have kind of stunted the wound just a little bit, it doesn't it doesn't yeah. sting nearly as much. Don't don't piss off women now with you know this going after arguably the the most famous woman on the planet right now. Yeah, don't mobilize Ugh. that vote. You know, do do what you will, but it does seem like pretty self-inflicted uh, wound there to be so hyper-fixated on her and warning her not to uh, to endorse. I mean, can she can she have a political opinion? Right? Is, that, is she not allowed to say that she supports you know her LGBTQ fans and mm. friends and family? Mm. You know, you need to be quiet about that because you have too much power. Are they suppressing her right to free speech? I just I don't get it. I don't think it's a good move, but we'll see how it plays out. Don't disagree. Dr. Matt Wilkinson, sociologist, thank you so much for giving us some time and having a little lighthearted reflection on all things Taylor Swift here on The Ron Show today. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Final segment of The Ron Show. Thanks for listening, whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Hey, man, good economic news coming out today. The U.S. economy added 353,000 new jobs in January, better than expected. And before that even came out, you heard the likes of this from a former Trump advisor, Larry Kudlow, on Fox Business. This, uh, if I'd have seen this last night, I'd have fallen out of my chair. I was kind of enjoying. Who else am I going to talk to about the economy? <laughs> I, was, I mean, my mea culpa. I was wrong about the slowdown in the recession. So was the entire. I don't think you were wrong. Forecasting fraternity. Well, the Fed. This everyone was wrong. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, not everyone was wrong. Just a lot of leading economists and anyone on the right who wanted to believe that that was going to be the case. Non-farm payrolls, 353,000 new jobs for the month of January. Better than what the uh, Dow Jones estimate was leading us to believe it was going to be. By about 170,000 jobs. Yeah, they predicted half, about half of what we wound up getting. 
The unemployment rate uh, held at 3.7%. Average hourly earnings increased 0.6%, double the monthly estimate. On a year-over-year basis, wages have jumped 4.5% above the 4.3% forecast. CNBC reporting job growth was widespread in January, led by professional and business services with 74,000. That's important because that's not holiday retail. That's not temporary stuff. Other significant contributors included healthcare, again, permanent 70,000, and then the retail trade at 45,000 new jobs. That being said, I'm always trying to warn the coastal elites. You hear that term on the right all the time. The coastal elites, they have no idea what the average person is dealing with. Stephanie Rule, after the New Hampshire primary, I believe, was on MSNBC and said something akin to being just openly dismissive about the way the average American family feels the pinch. Just saying essentially something along the lines of they're not getting crushed by inflation. And I cringed. I, In fact, I cringed and I grabbed my phone to tweet at her because I was like, this, no, you got to stop doing this because that's the sort of soundbite stuff that the opposition takes and runs with. And it really does kind of come off as elite. I, I said, ooh, Stephanie Rule at 11th hour, careful being not middle class, she's not, and insisting the middle class isn't feeling things in this economy, ma'am. That's how Democrats lose in this environment. I mean, shades of 2016. She responded, hey, credit to her for doing that. Like, within the hour, I believe. I did not say the middle class isn't feeling it. I said they're not getting crushed. Daryl Dominic in Metairie, Louisiana, tweets, I'm middle class and way left, and I'm absolutely getting crushed. Higher homeowners insurance, flood insurance, auto insurance, higher cost of groceries, stagnant wages. I have cut back all I can in working more Sundays. I already work Saturdays. This is unreal. My two cents. I'm only bringing this up because it it feels like we're setting ourselves up for a situation where we just gloat and coast because the economy is doing well. And it is by just about every economic measure, except that at the kitchen table, you hear Joe Biden talk about the kitchen table conversations, grocery costs are still high. The Washington Post reporting on that today and giving valid reasons as to why that is, none of them can be dealt with with government policy. Grocery prices, they write, remain elevated due to a mixture of labor shortages tied to the pandemic, ongoing supply chain disruptions. Yes, the infrastructure bill we just passed into law is just now shovel-readying some projects that are going to help with that. Droughts, Joe Biden can do nothing about that. The avian flu, other factors far beyond the administration's control. Robust consumer demand has also fueled a shift to more expensive groceries, and consolidation in the industry gives large chains the ability to keep prices high, economic policy experts say. Now, who is all about deregulation and pro-big business? You guessed it, not the party controlling the White House. That's the sort of pivot that messaging has to include this election cycle. We know you're feeling it at the grocery store. We know you're feeling it when you buy a new set of tires. We know it when you're buying your goods at the department store, your house cleaning, your laundry goods. Yeah, we get it. We know. We know it's tough. Competition has been stifled. For decades, it's not something that happened overnight, and it's not something that can be fixed overnight. But An oligarchy is taking over our economy and has been doing so for more than four decades. So, America, we need, I keep talking about this, 
We need that eight-year electoral revolution. The American Revolution was eight years. We need an electoral revolution. We need you showing up this November. We need you showing up in two Novembers. We need you showing up in 2028 and 2030 and 2032. And then let's see where we are and what sort of policy we can actually put into effect that handles a lot of those kitchen table financial issues that you need to address. I get it. In the next eight years, it's going to be tough. It always, it just is. There aren't enough levers that the left has controls of to deal with capitalism that's run amok. But I also need my friends, the coastal liberal elites, to chill out with the, man, aren't things great? Isn't this fantastic? No offense to Stephanie Rule, but she wouldn't know. She grew up in a New Jersey suburb that has a six-figure median income when the rest of the country is around 74000 per household. No disrespect to Stephanie Rule. She worked her way up through the financial industry and landed at Bloomberg Television and has been making a good living at cable news since then, but there's some disconnect. Got to be careful with that. That's going to do it for The Ron Show. Have yourselves a great weekend. Back here Monday, 9 to 10 a.m. weekdays and 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com. Listen anytime you want, wherever you podcast. Show notes at RonShowATL.com.